I think it uh, is pretty clear that, that we and, and China have very different views on a whole host of very important topics. Um, and I've just, I was just running down a list here, but everything from how we deal uh, and, and, and welcome minorities in our civilization, uh, how we uh, believe about diversity, uh, what we think about single-party rule, uh, uh, how we would deal with Taiwan, for instance. Uh, our perspective on censorship is very different. Our perspective on human rights is very, very different. The rule of law uh, uh, in our nation and, and their nation uh, is very different. The South China Sea is an area of great conflict. The list goes on and on. We have a number of things that are very different between the perspectives of a free people in the United States of America uh, and the leadership of, of China. And so I wonder whether these Confucius, these, uh, uh, Confucius Institutes are part of an influence campaign by the uh, Chinese government to shape attitudes in the minds of the American uh, children, the coming generations, as to those, those kinds of differences. Is this really a propaganda effort, a, a, uh, a mind-shaping effort uh, of our young people being carried out uh, through uh, the auspices of these Confucius Institutes? to Covert Contact from Blogs of War, where each week your host, John Little, takes a deep dive into the national security, intelligence, and technology stories that are shaping our world. All right, welcome to Covert Contact. This is episode 105, and I am your host, John Little. It is Thursday evening here on the West Coast of the United States, so that means it's time to talk to William Tucker about counterintelligence stuff. William, welcome back. Thanks for having me again. In one of our earlier chats, uh, one where we sort of uh, came back and started talking about uh, Chinese espionage and the scale of it, we, we, we said that you know we anticipated there to be a lot of... Uh, a lot of news in this arena, and of course, it keeps coming and is likely uh, likely to keep coming as the two countries are essentially decoupling. Today, we got news that uh, the Trump administration is going to ask that can well require the Confucius Institutes cultural outreach programs run out of China uh, to register as foreign missions, and uh, it's a topic I think you and I have talked about before, not on the podcast, but maybe privately. So there's. There's been some interest in, in doing this for a while. Yeah, certainly. Um, I, I know you played that clip there, Senator Romney, but uh, even going back to the Obama administration, there were certain uh, concerns expressed over uh, over these Confucius Institutes. Um, you, you know, part of that comes from reciprocity of, hey, we open institutes here, but Americans can't open institutes on U.S. campuses in China. Um, that's that's been a long simmering issue and that was actually called out uh, in the statement today on on requiring those uh, institutions to register as foreign missions um, for the uninitiated um, what a foreign mission is is you're, you're probably familiar with your embassies uh, your your consulates but a foreign mission is uh, can they can offer certain services um, 
sometimes diplomatic services, but um, usually you want to get the full services at your embassy, your consulate, but certain things like uh, cultural exchanges occur at these foreign missions. And I've, I've often joked probably on the podcast for the longtime listeners that um, one of my favorite covers is the, uh, the cultural attache. <laughs> um, so that, that's, that's why there's the focus on these institutes is because uh, cultural missions or these types of foreign missions, they do have uh, they do have an espionage element to them. Uh, not always through planning; uh, it's not something that's used exclusively or all the time. But it is something that is uh, that's available. It provides great cover, and you get access to a lot of areas where you may not have had access before uh, to provide that kind of cover to people that are collecting intelligence for you. Yeah, and this, this new requirement will essentially force greater transparency, right? They'll have to reveal their personnel um, and folks that are on their payroll. They'll have to uh, be much more transparent about any property they have. And, you know, it's essentially yeah. um, uh, they can't do things uh, as discreetly as maybe they would like. Yeah, and I, that's a great characterization. Uh, it's really what it is. Um, they'll have to reveal the sources of funding as well. And that's been also one of the points of contention is that um, we know where the funding comes from, um, but the Chinese simply won't admit to it, uh, which is, which is odd. Um, you know, cultural missions have been around for a long time. so It's kind of obvious, it's, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's something that they could easily own up to and they could have been, pretty transparent about these things because they do, uh, they do offer some, um, great services to uh, college students. You know, one of the things that's, that's kind of expensive and difficult to provide for a lot of institutions is sometimes foreign language programs. Um, so the good news is with this is that if you are a student, it doesn't matter where you come from. Uh, you do not have to register if you're taking like a, uh, a class in Chinese, whether it's Mandarin, Cantonese, um, at one of these institutes, you're, you're still fine. Classes should uh, continue unimpeded uh, unless the university decides as a matter of course to shut these down. And some universities have. But uh, so, yeah, some of those things that are, will still be available um, to students who want to access them. But as far as how the, how the institution actually operates administratively, it has to be it has to become a little bit more transparent now with this uh, with this order. I mean, yeah, this is a completely fair requirement. And again, you know, like you mentioned earlier, we don't even have the ability to you know to have these kinds of of organizations and do this kind of cultural exchange on this level in China. Um, so you know, we're already hobbled, and we're we're essentially asking them for the sort of the bare minimum and allowing them to continue to operate. To your earlier point, many countries do this including us, right? We do, we do it in other parts of the world. Uh, there are many countries allied with the United States that do this all around America and have great language training programs and interesting culture exchanges. And, you know, there's even an under sort of a gentleman's agreement. Like everybody knows that to some extent that they will, will be used as cover for some level of, of espionage or talent spotting or building relationships that might be more strategic later. Uh, but again, with China, everything thing is just a little bit extra yeah that's and that's true and um, i'm glad you mentioned talent spotting because that's a that's actually a huge issue and it reminds me of actually a really good case 
And this one actually involves a guy named Kendall Myers. He, he, this doesn't involve China, but it does involve Cuba. And this is a guy that worked at the State Department for, I want to say, the better part of 25 years. And he was spying for Castro this entire time. But he was recruited. He and his wife were recruited while they were in college at, and at one of these uh, cultural exchanges. So talent spotters got a hold of them, found that they were sympathetic to at first the communist cause and then they kind of grew into the whole cuban cause but yeah it's it does happen and i you know what i even mention uh kim philby uh you you we spoke about him you know off the off right. the, off the podcast last week and uh and that's where he was likely uh, exposed to his communist ideals uh, when he was recruited, was actually at his uh, preparatory college at Westminster. Let's it's, talk about talent spotting real quick, just for folks who aren't sure. familiar with that. And, you know, that's essentially, especially when you're looking at younger folks before they enter their careers. And, you know, when you when you can build a relationship with them at this level um, and you can, you can you know, offer them services like language training, and then that could you could, if they're interesting or you think that they have the prospect to evolve into somebody who could be useful to you in the future, or even just outright manipulated right off the bat and essentially, uh, you know, leveraged as an asset immediately, then you can bring them back to the home country at your expense and, and offer them some kind of deeper cultural exchange and recruit them and all of that stuff, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I would actually urge people, because there's actually a perfect case study on this and it's called um it, it revolves around a kid named glenn duffy shriver um, this was a case where he is actually in china he's learned the language he's uh he actually responds to a newspaper ad basically write an essay tell us what you think about say china, u.s chinese relations right um and they'll pay you uh, you know just it wasn't much money but they they did pay the entrance and uh and it was a perfect segue into uh, recruiting this kid. Um, young, naive, comes from a, a poor uh, family background, so you know money became an issue. But the the Chinese, you know, and it was a, it was that I won't call it a slow walk. They actually walked this kid pretty quick because he was so receptive to their uh, their overtures that they they kind of recruited him into the fold, contingent on his uh, ability to. They get into the State Department. Uh, he failed the uh, he failed the exams there. He went to the CIA. Um, he actually walked out on the polygraph because <laughs> uh, he was so nervous, which is what actually got him arrested. That's a red uh, flag. Yeah, just a little one. But but it's it's those it's those things like that where you can you can reach these. Uh, I won't call them necessarily uh, feeble minded, <laughs> but uh, because I, any. I, I was a kid once, and yeah. you're naive. At some point in your life, you are naive, and you do, yeah, you know, you you do things, you say things, and you believe in stuff that uh, it it doesn't last long, fortunately. But it does make them susceptible to. Uh, yeah, I mean, some of them are strident, you know, strident, but others are, you know, it's it's tremendously fascinating yeah. opportunity, and of course, they know how to play that. Um, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know if. I wish I wish I had thought about this before we started recording, but I don't remember exactly where I saw these. I know I saw them on uh, on YouTube, but they had some videos of uh, young American college students 
um, in some kind of program in China. Uh, and they were essentially interviewing them on, you know, their thoughts on China. And again, it was this, these things were very, very slanted <laughs> and, and sort of, you know, indicated that, um, this is what had happened to, to that bunch of folks. I don't know if you've ever seen any of those. I might try to go back and dig them up. Yeah. It's, um, you know, the funny thing is, I want to say it was uh, one of the late night hosts, uh, you know, like your Johnny Carson uh, types, uh, they used to do this man on the street is what they yeah. would call it. Yeah. Yeah. And in the, in, and I've actually continued to use that term for things like that because think of it this way, you, you know, you're, you're that you're an American kid in China. Um, and you have somebody from Chinese media, let's say, come up to you. Hey, what do you think of your experience so far? Right. Well, hey, it's great. You know, I've been treated well. It, it, it does. It, they have a great propaganda effect. And even though, you know, they're unwitting, they, they they even may sense that something's kind of off about it because, I mean, you got all these people out here. You come talk to me. That's kind of odd. Um, but, but yeah, it's, uh, it is. It's definitely man on the street propaganda. That's my term for it. But, right. Uh, yeah, it, it does. It has an effect. And, you know, they can extend even more leverage over these kids if they've, they're have they recording these at the end of some, you know, semester abroad or something where, you know, they've paid for their, their cultural exchange program, right? Yeah. You, you take, a, you take you know, a number of these interviews and uh, you string them together, you put them at the end of these videos and, it, yeah, it's, it, it's great press is what it is. Well, even better propaganda, but... <laughs> But, uh, yeah, it, and it does, it, it, it can sway a lot of people. Um, and, uh, and China certainly has leveraged that. I mean, who doesn't, everybody right. plays that game, but for China, they actually had kind of a need to do so. And even at their, even at their government level, a lot of their, um, they self aggrandizing, they like to call themselves a superpower. Um, I remember this one, one issue I was involved in, um, a number of years ago and, well, was fun. and like a lot of espionage cases, there usually you'll see connections to somebody else who's spying, say, somewhere else, right? And so this one was connected to this guy, and uh, I remember he was when he was rolled up, he uh, he was yeah he tried warning. I remember he tried warning this kid of what was happening when he had FBI there in the house, and then uh, years later there was an interview with his wife, and she she was towing that propaganda line because she's still here in the States. And, and she said, isn't it great when these two superpowers can work together? I mean, that's what my <laughs> husband was really trying to do. And I'm saying, well, China's not a superpower at all. <laughs> but um, it's interesting to see, to see how, um, you know, some of those propaganda lines can uh, just kind of feed out people latch onto them and they're just constantly repeated until they become truth to them. Let's talk about another aspect of these, which um, I think it has received a fair amount of attention from time to time. I know, especially when Dalai Lama is involved, um, but these groups uh, often exert pressure on the universities uh, where they're situated. And that, that can be in, it can be opposition to classes or the way, you know, the narratives of different professors or, you know, programs where they host, Dignitaries like the Dalai Lama and the Confucius Institute will push back on that. So there's there are other ways, uh, more overt ways, that they're sort of exerting influence. 
Yeah, in fact, uh, you mentioned the Dalai Lama, and I think that actually did happen in the U.S. That there was some uh, pressure on an institution, but for the life of me, I can't remember what it is offhand. But I do remember something along those lines. Um, so I'm I'm sure some of our more astute listeners will look that up. Um, but yeah, it, I mean it's it's even impacted how uh, uh, how the White House receives the Dalai Lama. Um, so that's always a great example. And even now we, you know, one of our, um, I don't remember if it was the head of the CDC or uh, health and human services that was just recently in Taiwan. Um, you know, and that was, that was simply unheard of. And part of that was that the whole one China agreement, but, um, which is falling apart is nonsense to begin with. Um, but, uh, yeah, you can, you can see how, how those kinds of things can, uh, or what, at least what China is very sensitive about. Um, and that, yeah, they're going to, there's certainly push back on those institutions if they host somebody they don't like. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think that's also another area where China sort of stands out because most of the other, you know, uh, foreign sponsored cultural exchange programs, I can't recall an incident of them going to those kind of links overtly to try to establish influence. Um, yeah, nothing's coming to mind. They're, there might have been some stuff, Cold War stuff, um, not even, I would say probably out of the East Block. I would remember, I could I seem to recall some things like that, but as far as... Uh, be pretty far uh, back, something, though. Something on the, yeah, something on the level of what China's doing now, no. I, that's, yeah, it, it does stand out quite a bit. So what do you think we go from here? Um, you know, as I mentioned at the top of the show, there's essentially a uh, conscious decoupling. Is that, what, is that what they call the divorce? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, going on here. And, and, you know, there's really no sign of, of it slowing down. And, uh, you know, I even saw news today, uh, I think related to Apple, um, committing to, to move in even more of their manufacturing outside of China. So uh, to some extent, it's hap- happening at economic level, uh, cultural level, and, and, you know, government level. Yeah, and you know it's interesting you mentioned Apple because Apple's kind of been that one holdout, um, and it was at, at some point an American company operating in China is going to have to look at what is happening in China right now, what is likely to happen, you know, say in the next five, ten years, and really reevaluate. But and Apple has been very slow about that, um, and. I would say one of their partners, Foxconn, had, I think, I don't know if it was their CEO, but one of their executives had mentioned that uh, China is done being the world's factory. Um, that, yeah. that era is over. So that, it, and, uh, you know, and that's, that's a big statement to make because Massive. that's really, uh, yeah, that's really the characterization of China over the last 30 years has been the world's factory. Um, yeah, you could find um, labor rates cheaper elsewhere, whatnot, but the capacity was already built into China, so you know a lot of companies stayed. But uh, with impending crackdowns, um, worsening economics that we're seeing globally, not just in China but everywhere, uh, yeah, there's going to be there, there's certainly the potential for um, um, disruption, and we already saw that, of course, with COVID and disruption of uh, pharmaceuticals. Um, things like that. I think somebody's telling me that ninety-five uh, percent of our pharmaceuticals are manufactured in China, or the raw which materials, is simply absurd. Yeah. yeah, yeah, which is which is absurd that you would um, have have a stovepiped <laughs> supply chain like that. But 
you yeah, know, I keep mean, as cheap as established, and, yeah. and and China would take a loss to make sure that they had that capacity. So yeah, but yeah, things are going to shift. I, I do expect. Um, so we've seen hits um, to China in in the realm of academics um, and their media. So I, I what I would is that a number of Chinese companies are going to be um, be targeted next not just not just from the espionage angle as they already have been but there's going to be um, um, even more scrutiny that'll force them out of either the United States and I'm sure China will try to reciprocate where they can but um, that's something that'll probably become a little bit more visible in the uh, coming weeks. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's fascinating, um, potentially um, leads us to, you know, down a, a path that's very dangerous, but also this this balance, rebalancing has to happen or, you know, or we have to push back in, in some sense. Do you think that, that with, especially with the economic pressure piling up, um, and, you know, I don't think, I would say that I don't think in the short term that there's a course correction here, but do you think? Do you think there's any hope at all uh, for a course correction from the Chinese and to to reciprocate a little bit more and and to provide a little bit more transparency so that there could be some kind of reset? Or do you think that, that we just continue to go down this path until we're pretty profoundly decoupled? Well, I, you know, and that's a tough one. I do I do expect the decoupling to continue. Um, and I do expect some of that to be to be quite final. But um, I, as far as China goes, they're going they're going to have to adapt um, because there's I don't see this rolling back uh, right now. Even in the presidential election, um, both our major candidates are playing who's tougher on China. Um, for one, two, there's just some real there's just some realities that uh, you just can't. Surmount in the U.S. is is adapting because as the consumer and the world's largest uh, market, it's it's a little easier for the U.S. to make those calls. But um, and as I've mentioned before, you can only take certain damage, especially from espionage, for so long, especially when you're talking trillions of dollars per year. Um, and no, that's not an exaggeration. I know in 2008 specifically, the cost of U.S. businesses was about one trillion dollars um, due to economic and industrial espionage. So yeah, it's, it's a big deal. And, and as we, again, as we mentioned before, when you're opening a new espionage case every 10 hours, um, it, it, it kind of brings that, brings it home just how uh, big of a problem this is. And China has shown itself thus far incapable of making a course correction on some of those things. Um, I don't know, and like I, I think I said last week, is I don't know if they can. Right. Um, it's not so matter. It might not be a matter of will. It's just a matter of ability. So, yeah, this is going to it's going to be rough for for years to come. But um, the United States is adapting uh, as it usually does. But for China, this is this is quite significant. So I, I don't know if they can make that adaptation yet. But um, we're we're going to get to see how they play it. Well, I have a feeling that uh, when it comes time for our next Thursday chat, I have a feeling there'll be something else to discuss. <laughs> Without a doubt. We'll pick it up next week and uh, see where the 
Chinese-U.S. relationship stands at that point. Sounds like a plan. You have been listening to Covert Contact from Blogs of War. This podcast is produced, written, and hosted by John Little. Follow John on Twitter at Blogs of War and join the conversation with hashtag CCBOW. Thanks for listening. Thank you.